I think it's really important to practice speaking out loud because I think it's one thing for an engineer and for anyone to be able to solve a problem. That's wonderful and great, but I also think it's crucial for obvious reasons that you are able to talk through in an interview, how you came to that conclusion, how you're thinking about the problem space and the delivery of those answers needs to be understood and digestible. And so in preparation for the technical portions of your interview, I think you should familiarize yourself with pretending or doing some sort of role play and just say, this is what collaborating with me would look like and mean. And so this is how I'm thinking about doing checks against, is this what I'm supposed to be solving for? And questions like that, because I don't think you can do that if you're just like writing down the answer to a coding problem on a piece of paper. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Develop on the platform that sellers trust. Here's what you could do with Square. You could bridge more experiences. You could build online, mobile, and in-person commerce experiences that connect more customers and sellers. You can build custom booking solutions. You can create and track orders. You can accept payments. You can manage and curate inventory. You can organize customers. You can manage employees. You can extend Square gift cards to your app. You can use Afterpay. So much is available as a Square Solutions partner. Learn more and get started at changelog.com slash square again changelog.com slash square let's do it it's go time welcome to go time your source for diverse discussions from all around the go community check out our back catalog at gotime.fm. There you'll find the most popular episodes, our favorites, and a request form so you can let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to our friends at Fly.io, host your app servers close to your users, no ops required. Learn more at Fly.io. Okay, here we go. Hello! And welcome to Go Time. Today, we're going to be talking about engineering interviews. We're going to be talking about tips, tricks, gotchas, as well as some potential interviewing horror stories, positive stories, red flags, things to avoid, as well as hopefully some green flags. What should you do to really ensure that you're successful in your software engineering interview? I have the absolute pleasure, as always, of being joined by my wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, bafflingly beautiful Natalie as my co-host hi hi hello it gives me joy every time I see you with me I'm very happy to see you every time as well Angelica (laughs) never get sick of it (laughs) and aside from Natalie we have two other wonderful women we have the lovely Emma Draper whose pronouns are she her and she is an engineering manager at the New York Times based in Arizona hi Emma how are you Hi, I'm doing very well. How you doing? Good day? Excited? First time on Go Time? First time. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And then we also have Jonas, who is a technical enablement manager at Datadog and who is based in Denver. How are you today, Jonas? I am great. Happy to be here with you all. Thank you, Angelica. (laughs) And what is a technical enablement manager? So primarily, I focus with customers on how to be more effective and successful with Datadog through trainings, workshops, both kind of public stuff, custom stuff, teaching, enabling, as the name implies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very excited to have you on as well. Not the first time, but you haven't been in on a, you haven't been on in a hot second. So great to have you back. So we're going to dive right in. So how do you interview as a software engineer? Like, what are the different interview stages? How how do you do it? Jonas? Sure, yeah. So I think, I mean, so most interviews follow kind of this typical format. I think every company can be a little different. So you'll want to always check with that company. But I think the flow tends to be you will have generally some sort of recruiter screen to start. And that's either if you implied or maybe a recruiter reaches out to you. That's a really basic quick chat, usually more about the role expectations. From there, it'll depend. Some companies will do a technical screen that may be with a person. It may be through like a program or a take home or something. Or you might have a hiring manager screen. You might have both of those. And then from there, you traditionally go into what's kind of considered like a panel or like on-site, although we're in a virtual world, so on-site has a different meaning. But from there, you usually have kind of a a chunk of interviews 
that focus on technical capabilities as well as usually some kind of team collaboration communication skill set. And there's usually, so there's like a gate kind of at each one of those. And then once you've done the whole panel set, usually that's it. But, you know, again, every place can be a little different. <laughs> but in my experience, that's kind of the general format for most engineering interviews. And are all of the interviews run by fellow engineers? Like who typically does the interviews for software engineers? Yeah, I think... You know, once you get particularly to the technical screens and the on-sites, you will generally be with engineers. Sometimes you will also, depending on the teams, you might be meeting with product managers, designers, other people that you would be working with on the team, uh, particularly around things like assessing your teamwork and collaboration. Like, you know, they want to assess, like, can you work with all the other people you might be working with in your function? And then sometimes you'll also potentially meet with other leaders in the company, usually technical leaders, but you might with like a VP of engineering or a director or CTO, even if it's like a smaller company. But I think the majority will be engineering for like a more tech company. Again, if you're interviewing someone where maybe they don't have a lot of engineers, that could be different. But <laughs> if, if you're at a real tech focused company, that's the case. And then I know that you have a combination of both kind of technical in terms of like code this thing, talk to me about system design, but you also have, I guess, technical in the sense of leadership, technical strategy, especially if you're interviewing for you know a management role, et cetera. I'd love to hear a little bit, um, Emma, from you about how you go about assessing for those kind of qualities, more like culture fit, leadership qualities, et cetera. Yeah, I think it highly depends on the role that you're interviewing for, right? I think at different levels of engineering, you have different impact that's measured and how that can be measured could be what is the impact and the scope of in which I'm being involved and bringing the team along on my immediate squad, but also what does that look like for partner squads if you're in a staff or a senior engineering role? And then at a principal level and even at some levels of staff, it really does amount to how am I impacting the tech community at large and what kind of engagement am I having? How am I contributing to things like open source repositories or something like GoTime podcast, right? Like what, what is my contributions to elevating and, um, and working with those in the tech community at large? So does that answer your question? It does. It does. So I know you kind of touched on this, Jonas, it's kind of semi-different at every company. I'd love to hear from your experiences what parts are fixed and where is there kind of room for you to curate the process for your specific team, the specific role that that person is interviewing for? As someone who's hiring, like as a hiring manager, I mean, again, I, I hate to say like it depends, but I do. I think what I've experienced is that at maybe a more enterprise or mature company, you will probably be following a very standard system much more. And that's because at this point, right, the company has built this system over time. They've tested it, they know it works. And so for the most part, you will follow that. There may be certain ways you can customize based on if you need a certain specialty or type of role, like if you're really focused in distributed systems or in security. And so then you might do some, you might have like a specific technical screen or part of the technical that'll be really specific. But then outside of that, you're still within this very structured framework. Now I've hired at much smaller companies where it was just like, go hire people. Good luck. You know, and then you're pretty much creating the whole thing yourself. So I think it can be, you know, definitely that's a difference. I think in terms of sizes of company and maturity of company is how structured you're going to be as a hire manager versus just on your own. Okay. But can we overall, when someone's thinking about interviewing as a software engineer, they can overall expect to have some kind of system design, some kind of leadership and strategy some kind of cross-functional collaboration. So cross-functional, we mean like with a product manager, project design, depending on the company, depending on the team, a kind of practical coding, which perhaps would be what most are familiar with, i.e. like code this thing, solve this problem, code review this thing while you know we watch and we see how you think through this problem. Debugging, as well as sometimes, again, dependent on the company you are interviewing for, some kind of algorithm data-based interview. Is that high level what people should expect? Or is there anything else that I, I may have missed? If, if listeners are saying, oh, what are the different interviews I should be thinking through? I guess I would say from my perspective, it, it matters what company are you interviewing for? What role are you aspiring to be hired at? And then 
you know, what is the composition of the team currently? And that will kind of help structure what those interviews look like. So the roles and expectations will craft what types of interviews you're going to see. The composition will indicate what the team's composition, which you can ask that in the recruiting screen or the hiring manager screen is, you know, what does the team dynamic look like and who are the members of the team? I think will help provide insight into who you'll be interviewing with. And then I think what the company's mission is and what they're, what problems they're solving for will likely be key indicators of the types of questions that you're going to see in the interview process. Yeah, I would just echo, I think everything you touched on is right, Angelica, and that if you're just know you're going to be interviewing that's a good way to like start studying and preparing but then very much to emma's point like you know talk to the recruiter talk to the hiring manager like because everyone will be potentially a little different and so don't be afraid to ask what is it you know what's your process and like get as much info as you can so that you can actually be really specific for that role and be really ready for it I really agree with you. And I think that also even sometimes I read that in as part of the job description and that's a great thing to include there. Kind of so you know how much effort you're going to have to put into that. And you both agreed kind of on what the steps are that are the same everywhere. What are your thoughts of automating one of the steps? For example, you can already see some companies using tools like lead code or and so on. Yeah, I've had mixed feedback on the different tools. If you're considering them, definitely do research on it. I know I've used some that seem kind of helpful, some that have been dropped because you just don't get very good signal from them. In a perfect world, I would like to never use them or have to use them because ultimately I think you get the best signal from being in front of a person and having stuff specific to what you're trying to hire. I do understand their place, right? If you are really rapidly trying to scale and hire a lot of people and you don't have a lot of existing engineers that can like spend their entire time interviewing. So I can see the place for it, but um, ultimately I think it's not the best tool. And I think particularly if you're trying to hire more senior and experienced people, you're never going to get the good signal from that. You might even turn away candidates with stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So use it wisely, sparingly, you know, like know what it's good for and what it's not. <laughs> and are you, have you used them much, Emma? I haven't. I don't have a lot of exposure to, I mean, in terms of how you can automate the hiring process, I've used like a centralized ATS, which I think is really helpful, like Greenhouse. So what candidates are applying, you can then move them through, which I think is great. But in terms of how you administer interviews and using automation there, I don't have a lot of experience and I, I'm not opposed, but I do think that I would proceed with caution to what Jonas mentioned for the main reason of it's really important to the culture of the team and how that's set from a microculture perspective of the roles that you're hiring for that the team gets a lot of exposure. And we're talking about, right, six interviews total where you get 40 minutes to get a gauge of if that individual is going to be, you know, a great add to the team. So minimizing that and reducing it by any amount is like... I don't know if it's worth the, um, the, the steps it might remove, I guess. So you both agree that this is not like used with caution is kind of mm. the thing that you would both say. And is this your answer for automating any of the steps or like, are you in particular opposed to automating the, like the first interview or the technical or is there one that makes more sense or less sense to automate? Yeah, I've only seen these used in the very first step. And that's the only place I would. And again, it's because you're really just trying to, like, if you get a ton of applicants and have a limited pool of people that can actually do that initial screen, then it can be a helpful tool just to help, like, quick filter basic coding ability. And that's where I think it can be kind of effective just to help that process. But yeah, I think to Emma's point after that, I mean, you have relatively such little time to actually assess a person and get a sense for it. And like, if you're starting to automate those later stages, I just think you're, I don't think you're going to get the signal. You're probably not creating a good candidate experience either. So I don't see you getting a lot of benefit on either side. I also kind of think of it again, I haven't interviewed and it be automated. I haven't gone through that process, but I almost would say it's like when you, when you call and the service is just putting you through these prompts and you're like, I just (laughs) want to speak to a person like from an interview we perspective like it really is nice to meet with people who have been at the company who can speak to what the culture is like today what challenges and areas for improvement they've identified right and so you don't get those from a system that's you know prompting you with questions so i think i'd be like zero like how do i get to the (laughs) person (laughs) no i've had that i've had really terrible experiences with automated interviews not in the software engineering space but in my prior life in academia i had a whole interview that was an hour and a half long 
and it was just a robot asking me a question and then getting me to record a video of me. And they were like deep questions. They were like, what does diversity mean to you? And like, they're like, okay, ready to record? And then one of them would start the interview and it would like, like auto start the recording and you had 30 seconds to give your answer. And if you like stuttered, it was like, next question. So I, I, w- I would plus one that. So we've talked through the, the high level uh, different stages, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the difference of interview process, depending on the level i.e. if someone coming in as associate, a staff, a mid-level, a senior, what are the key differences at each level? I've seen different ways that's approached. So at some companies, the interview process is still very much the same, but the rubrics and they cater the questions a bit different for leveling. So that's one way I've seen it done. Others, there is an actual different inter- like flow where you might have maybe a bit less for like an associate because you know, you don't want to put them through a system design maybe, right? Because they haven't done a lot of system design properly. Whereas with, you know, maybe if you're interviewing staff and principal, you would do that. You might do an additional one. You might, that's where you might have them actually meet with someone like a VP because you want to really assess their strategic thinking. So whereas with the other way I've seen it, it's you kind of use the same format. You just, the questions are kind of catered a little differently for the level and then you have a rubric. So those are the two different ways I've seen it done. Is it similar for you, Emma, or anything anything else? No, I, th- I think you touched on the main key things that I've seen, which is it'll likely be a reduced and kind of shortened process for junior engineers or, or associate level engineers. So you'll just have, again, perhaps the same interview structure, but there will be interviews that you're not going to see like system design. And maybe you'll lean heavier on the code review and debugging so that the collaboration there's an indicator, you know, key indicators of what collaboration with the individual and uh, mentorship opportunities would look like. And then I think the the other primary thing that I'll just echo is evaluation criteria, I think is really important. So how you're evaluating that individual is going to be different. And the things that you're looking for at a staff level or a principal level, um, right, kind of going back to impact is going to be different from, you know, what my expectations as a hiring manager are for an associate or a software engineer. So those are great additives, but I wouldn't expect an associate level engineer coming out of college to say, oh, I'm in all of these women in tech groups and I've, I host GoTime. Like, that's amazing, but that wouldn't be my expectation. Like, you, you just went through school, right? So. so do you feel like it would be a fair statement slash I'm looking for a reaction from you here to say that you can kind of give a little bit more leeway to hire someone and they can learn on the job when they're more junior but maybe you have a less of a tolerance for like knowledge gaps as we get higher up, i.e. a senior software engineer, you might maybe not give them as much um, leeway to learn on the job and more lean upon them demonstrating having worked in a system, having done something at a prior job. I would love to get a, just a reaction, a thought, a thought around that. I look for ability to learn and that like self-starter Um, initiative in any level. I think that that's just speaks highly of what type of learner the engineers are Um, and that they'll, you know, when they get on the job, they're going to face, even if they have tons of experience, there's going to be a whole new problem set that they likely haven't faced before. So I definitely want to see how they deal with ambiguity at any level. And I think that it's more about in my mind, um, at higher like staff and, senior level engineers. I think it's more about how you are, what kind of experience you're bringing to the table. So how you've dealt with systems at scale, right? That is not something likely junior level engineers have exposure to. And so I'm looking for you to be a resource for the team to be able to lean on and learn from. So I think that that's probably the the main difference. But Jonas, definitely curious what your experience is. Yeah, I would agree that yeah, ability to learn, I think, is pretty important in any role because of the nature of tech. Uh, but but yeah, it's really from as you start to go more senior, it's where that ability to really lead and, and provide that expertise from experience to lead and guide a team that becomes really important. And it's really where I think the depth of knowledge starts to become more important. Like, you know, you should have gained a lot more depth in that area, depending on the role. And that's what I would tend to be expecting more. And then 
that ability to really speak to different trade-offs and still be able to admit that you don't know everything. I mean, obviously we're always like, <laughs> even at the most senior, like, you know that, but like, you know, you're able to really understand where your limits are even and speak to that, but then also show a lot of depth in other areas. I think that can show a lot of maturity. That's really great. Definitely. I very agree with you both also that uh, you should probably not apply to a job where you meet 100% of the requirements or just, just be bored. Yeah. So, <laughs> makes a lot of sense, as you all say. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is a reliability platform for every developer. Incidents are a win, not an if situation, and they impact everyone in the organization, not just SREs. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. Robert, what is it about teams getting distracted by incidents and not being able to focus on the core product that upsets you? I think that incidents bring a lot of anxiety and sometimes fear and maybe even a level of shame that can cause this paralysis in an organization from progress. And when you have the confidence to manage incidents at any scale of any variety, everyone just has this breath of fresh air that they can go build the core product even more. I don't know if anyone's had the the opportunity, maybe is the word, uh, to call the fire department. But no matter what, when the fire department shows up, it doesn't matter if the building is hugely on fire. They are calm, cool, and collected because they know exactly what they're going to do. And that's what Fire Hydrant is built to help people achieve. Very cool. Thank you, Robert. If you want to operate as a calm, cool, collected team when incidents happen, you got to check out Fire Hydrant. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all the features. No credit card required to sign up. Get started at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. thoughts on interviewing on at a startup versus at a corporate? I'm curious. I have not worked at a ton of startups. I have worked for very small organizations. And so I will say you might be interviewing with very few technical people because they may not have a lot. I interviewed where I was the first technical person. That was a weird interview. Like, because no one knew how to assess How do you self-evaluate yourself? <laughs> on a scale of one to 10. <laughs> it's like grading. It's like, how well did I do on this exam? <laughs> Great. So my sense is probably startups, you may have some of that, you know, it's probably not always going to be a structure, right? Like, because it's a small company, you might be one of the first engineers getting hired, you'll probably interview with like the CTO or the CEO, which like, you know, at a enterprise would, if you're interviewing with the CTO, you're either really high up or like something's broken in that process. Like, that's probably a concern. But I don't know, have you had more startup experience, Emma? So I worked at a small startup and that interview process, and I was going through it, I did interview with the CEO. So speaking of like, just when you have really small organizations, the pool of people able to conduct an interview is it's much smaller. And that interview was intense. I mean, I was, I, it was like, I think it was 20 minutes and it was just rapid <laughs> fire, whatever questions kind of popcorned up, I was expected to answer and, and to be really, I think that's where like brief and concise answers, it's a good muscle to exercise, right? Like, how are you able to answer the question pointfully without rambling? So I think at a startup, that was more, I think it's applied at any level of interviewing, but I, I definitely noticed it when I was on a call with the CEO and just what you say matters, their time is, you know, really limited. And so you don't want to mess it up. And then as people are thinking through how much time it's going to take to interview, like how long does a typical interview process take? Like if you're kind of, you're working your current job and you're saying, oh, I kind of want to find myself a, a new job. What are the expectations around the length of that process before you may or may not, hopefully you will, get that job offer? I think that there's a difference between how long the job search takes <laughs> than the interview process. So I would, yeah. I would delineate between those two things because I think 
if you think that you've hit, you know, a ceiling at your existing company or in your existing role and you want to start exploring, I would give yourself a lot of time to find that right fit, right? Because there's this really unique balance of finding people that you're inspired by as well as the mission that you're aligned with. And that doesn't happen overnight. And oftentimes it's applying to a lot of companies and hearing back from a really small margin and fraction of those. And then in my experience, once the interview process is kicked off, it can take anywhere from at the small startups, it was a week or a week and a half, two weeks. It was really accelerated versus at, you know, the New York Times when conversations started and it probably took in total four months or five months. So it's just about like what, what their role's opening is and what their timeline looks like as a company to fill that position. Yeah, I think that's right. Like it can definitely range on the type of company and what their goals are for the hiring and their process. I mean, I think in terms of like the overall time you spend interviewing, you know, I think it's about six to eight hours of actual interviews. It feels about the norm. But yeah, there can definitely be gaps like between where those different gates are. And because, and especially like at an enterprise, right? Like many of the times or something, there might be, you know, we need to do so many candidates before we can move to another gate, like some of those checks and balances that are like just not even in your control. Like there's, <laughs> I think sometimes as a candidate, you can feel like, oh no, but like having them been on the other side, it's also like someone's just like, there are certain processes in place and like they have to go through like the wait sometimes between your final interview and an offer, like there can be so much happening in the background sometimes. So, so that's just something to consider, especially, yeah, I think at larger organizations, startups can be, are smaller, they can move a little faster, but so, yeah, I think be ready for that sometimes. It might take longer than you hope. <laughs> yeah. And um, I would say lean on your recruiter, right. Or the hiring hmm. team that has brought you on and just ask, right. Like I, I was really lucky to have an over-communicative recruiter that was just telling me like, nothing's going to happen for about a month. Don't have anything for you again. Like that's also fine, but I think it's nice to know where you're at and that the company is still thinking of you and considering you. Right. And so I would just say you can ask, ask questions. Yeah. Plus one on that. Like make your recruiter your friend. Talk to them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So in Germany, where I am, based, the average developer has a three months notice in the contract and the average manager would have even, well, not average manager, but many managers would have six months of a notice. So I wonder if the answer would be different if it's here. Yeah. It would be interesting to run. Maybe we can make this into an unpopular opinion. So it will be a poll or something. But <laughs> I can imagine if this is like a four months interview and then another six months of waiting, it's like you're going to get somebody next year. So I would expect them to be faster, but my experience is mostly with startups, so it's always fast, but it is interesting. Yeah. So zooming in on that duration of the process, how long should a coding assignment take if you do it at home versus if you do it on-site, on Zoom, or, you know, whatever the equivalent is? Please don't say eight hours. (laughs) <laughs> no, I was gonna say, I mean, I think there's like, yeah, what happens in reality versus like my advice. I prefer to keep them roughly the same. I have definitely seen some where it's like this take on our exercises, like, yeah, spend four hours. And like, that's kind of absurd to me, because you're interviewing at a ton of places. And like, you would never ask someone to like sit in an office for four hours. I mean, hopefully you wouldn't, maybe someone would, but like, that's just, I just don't think that's realistic, but I have got, like I've interviewed and had like, here's a take home. It's four hours. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> like it was not a great experience. So like, to me, I think take homes can be a nice option, but like you should treat it, you know, kind of the same as you would an in-person one and try to keep it around an hour, maybe 90 minutes, like depending what it is. But I just think after that point, you're just, I don't know, you're just exhausting people. I don't know if you're going to get much better signal, um, <laughs> but just like, unless you actually expect your engineers to like sit at their computers working on one thing for four hours, I don't know. When you do this specifically, do you say like start a timer in 90 minutes, whatever you're done, even if you didn't finish, just submit what you had? Or do you say like, it should take 90 minutes and this is what you should do and then kind of ends up in people sometimes taking longer or sometimes less? Which of the two approaches do you prefer? I think I feel a little torn on this, honestly. I feel like I'd rather just give them the recommended time because the idea of a timer feels stressful to me. Uh, <laughs> and because when I've done it with a timer. Not a real timer, but in the sense of a don't do over 90 minutes is what I meant. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I would rather just say like, yeah, please don't spend more than this. And because there are other tools that like then do that, but they enforce it, right? So then like you start the exercise and it's forced and that can feel stressful. So like I don't, I want to minimize stress as much as possible. (laughs) So, so yeah, ideally when I have seen that, it's more just like, here is an exercise. Please spend no more than 90 minutes on it. It shouldn't require more than that. Like, And then the guideline is basically if, if it's been 90 minutes and you didn't finish, just submit what you have. Like you don't, mm-hmm. you don't say, I expect this to take 90 minutes and I expect you to do ABC. No, yeah, I was going to say, it's usually pretty open. Emma, what are your thoughts? I have a follow-up that I really need to say. But like, if you're a software engineer and you're interviewing for a company and they're like, do this thing, create this app, you know, it should take no longer than 90 minutes. Like, I'm going to put my hands up and say like, I will spend all night to make it the perfect app I've ever built in my entire life <laughs> to submit. <laughs> like, so I think like what I wanted to bring up was like the reality of like, even if you say, and maybe this is just me, like, hey, build this like basic, I don't know, search engine for searching cat memes. I'm going to build that and have the most beautiful UI, the most like optimized, like, AP- like how do you get around that? And the fact that like, maybe if I follow the rules and I'm wonderful and I only spend 90 minutes and I provide you with what you want and maybe I just, I, I didn't manage to finish it, but I did follow the guidelines versus someone else who has submitted and they spent all night on this beautifully perfected. Like, do you take that into consideration and go, hmm, this is really good. Angelica didn't do this in 90 minutes. Like, how do you mitigate that? So when I've used these and I, I'll say I've only done take-homes as an to do interviews a couple of times is one is really, it's how you structure it. So I would not be like build an app. Like, cause that's just to your point, like there's almost no end and you can go so far. <laughs> like usually it's something that's already kind of pre-built. And then it's like three pieces that I want you to fix or add to or something. So that like, it's kind of targeted. I'm not going to leave it so open-ended that it makes it really easy for you to want to keep working on it forever. Because I know what you mean. Like, I would do this. I think so many people, right, you'd, like, want to be perfect. So if it's too open-ended, then you leave it like that. So the idea is to, like, have a very specific set of problems that people can touch in. And hopefully that – so that basically, like, even if you do them perfectly – like, there's nothing further to do, if that makes sense. Like, you can't (laughs) – there is no extra credit, even if you really wanted it. But – I don't know if you have any other, have you used them much, Emma, or any, any other approaches there? So I tend to lean in favor of a technical screen in person opposed to a take-home. If I have either been sent a take-home to fill out myself or if I'm um, sending that to candidates, in my personal experience, if I see it and it's going to take, I mean, I've received one that was like, just an absurd number of questions. And my reaction is, okay, I'm going to politely bow out because like you said, this, this isn't your full-time job. Like you're, you have a full-time job and you're also exploring other companies. So I think being really mindful of the fact that this also should be a good candidate, a hiring experience for the candidates is huge and crucial. And I think ultimately determines the success of being able to fill the roles well and quickly. When I have crafted or helped craft what those take-homes look like, it is very similar to what Jonas is saying. Um, I've kind of, the first question is something like, remove the duplicates in this array. And then the follow-up questions would be, you know, can you do that using recursion or can you do that and inherit a class or something like that so so it kind of builds on upon itself and it it should be in my mind less than five questions it shouldn't take very very long but I also don't believe that that in my experience it hasn't been time boxed by the recruiters of like I'm going to hand you this uh, take home and you need to get it back to me by Tuesday afternoon it's typically here's the take home when you finish it we'll schedule the rest of the interviews so so you've talked a lot about the many, many different parts that make up the full interview process and the fact that it could be spread over many months. It could be one day of intense interviews. I've certainly experienced and done that. So how do you prepare for all this? Like, how do you get yourself ready to do all these many different interviews? Yeah, I mean, ultimately practicing, which is, and I think that I even saw a whole uh, study that 
basically said people are more successful the more they practice, like, which isn't surprising, but just shows you that, unfortunately, I think for the most part, interviewing is a skill and you have to practice to develop it. And that's just, there's a whole other conversation we could have on how to actually assess <laughs> juniors, maybe, and that's like another day. But so I think for the world we're in and like what you're going to face, you have to practice and just like set aside time every day, every week, like, you know, understand your schedule and plan around that and like know how much prep you think you're going to need to be comfortable. Cause we can dig into different tips there, but I, the main thing is like, try to have a learning plan and prioritize it. Cause like, I feel like I definitely didn't do that well, like earlier on. And so then you just go in like a wormhole of answering like coder challenges. And then suddenly you're like, Oh, but that actually isn't what I need to practice. You know, like you can just get like really stuck in one thing. <laughs> and, like, so try to actually step back and be like, okay, you know, like, these are the types of companies, these are the types of roles. So I should like focus on this thing with API design or whatever you kind of know your weaknesses are, where you need to really practice and like have a plan for it. Cause otherwise you could spend a lot of time studying stuff that won't be relevant. <laughs> and that really is rough. <laughs> yeah. I tend to like, if I, if I were going to tips and, and tricks, I like to create a document and a list of questions that I would like to practice to Jonas's point, a kind of learning plan of, of what I would like to cover in preparation for, and again, it's, it's more broad. It's not specific to a, a particular role, but the roles that I'm applying to in at large, and then thinking through what attributes do I believe are going to be assessed. And then I think it's really important to practice speaking out loud against those problems. Cause I think it's one thing for an engineer and for anyone to be able to solve a problem. And that that's wonderful and great, but I also think it's crucial for obvious reasons that you are able to talk through in an interview, how you came to that conclusion, how you, how you're thinking about the problem space and the delivery of those answers needs to be understood and digestible. And so, yeah, I think that in preparation for the technical portions of your interview, I think you should familiarize yourself with pretending or doing some sort of role play and just say, this is, this is what collaborating me with me would look like and mean. And so this is how I'm thinking about doing checks against, is this what I'm supposed to be solving for? And questions like that. Because I don't think you can do that if you're just like writing down the answer to a coding problem on a piece of paper. It's like, you won't be doing that, especially in a virtual setting. So prepping those stories, prepping your examples. Yes. And like, what is your fun little story that demonstrates you've done this thing, whether made up or real? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just and like, like read your resume and then remind yourself what's in there because sometimes you know you like write it and then you just send it out there but like and then like practice talking through those examples because to your point like that's it's crazy how like you just forget everything you've ever done when someone asks you about it suddenly right like you have to kind of like and I was practicing tell me about yourself yeah right and I uh (laughs) yeah I even like did a practice with a friend recently who's getting into interviewing again because it's just especially if you haven't interviewed in a while right like you just need to like wake up that part of your brain that like knows how to talk about yourself in a nice concise you know very clear and direct way so yeah practice that for sure so when you're asked to talk about like a challenge you faced or like tell us about time you like failed like how honest should you be about that like hey I once like took down the production db true story like how honest (laughs) should you be with those uh stories or how do you frame it as a win yeah, the way I think about those, and it's helpful because I now have interviewed, but like think about what the interview is trying to learn from it. So like you generally those kind of questions are trying to get at like your ability to learn, your ability to have empathy, your ability to recognize mistakes. So like to me, it's not so much about how honest, it's more about like how well do you craft that story <laughs> so that it comes off like I brought down a production database, right? You can say that because I think it's, you know, I think most people accept that engineers make mistakes, but it's more about like how you say it, right? Can you speak to the fact of like, you know, this was the mistake I realized, here's what we did to improve. And like, I got this from it. Like, that's really more what you're trying to get at. Like, so, I mean, again, I think you want to be like careful about treading into weird waters of like, I don't know, maybe really weird interpersonal conflict or something. Cause I could just start sounding a bit like, Ooh, I don't know. Uh, but I think for the most part, you want to just like Think about like what the takeaway from that story is. And that's really what counts and make sure that comes through. Yeah, I definitely, I agree with everything Jonas is saying. I think that the, um, 
as with anything, like it's not that you haven't encountered, like you haven't made mistakes. That would be absurd if your interview, like that would be a red flag for me as an interviewee. If the interviewer that I am um, running through this process with is looking for perfection, I think that that's an unrealistic expectation. So I think there needs to be this mindfulness of the interviewer. The interviewer's job is not to trip candidates up when they ask a question. It's to better understand what the key takeaways and the lessons learned are, especially in, in a question like, what is a difficult experience that you've encountered in your career, whether that's a difficult situation with a colleague or a system, you know, a production level issue that you've released and how you dealt with it. I think that it's how do you deal with adversity, right? That amounts to, you know, are you the type of person that doesn't tell anyone when there's a production level outage and you've introduced a bug fix or are you the first one to say, you know, something's gone awry and I need some help. And who is my network of people that I can reach out to, to help? I also had a genuine follow-up question that came up to me, very similar to what Angelica was asking. And my question is, how would you craft your answer to tell me about yourself? Because many interviews begin with this. And it's like two minutes where you have to put everything into context and also tell your life story. Also put the important things, what should be there, what should not be there. How long should it take? How do you do this? Yeah, I would definitely recommend not too long. Like, keep it at a minute. I tend to avoid that question, to your point, because I think it does end up being a little too weird and open-ended. But And because I have seen, sometimes you ask it, and someone just starts talking, and they're going for, like, a really long... And, you know, these interviews, you only have so much time, and so sometimes someone, like, starts to tell. That was me in my very first job interview. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it could be interesting. I studied in high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get like your whole life story and it's like, it's nice, but it's also like, oh my God, we have 45 minutes and I have 10 other questions to ask you. So yeah, I usually think it's good to just talk a little bit about like, try to find a way to summarize your career journey through a couple key points. Like, you know, hey, yeah, I've spent most of my experience working in backend engineering. I've recently transitioned to management because I'm really interested in how to empower people. And, you know, I'm looking for new roles because I'm looking for a new challenge in mentorship right like kind of give that like hit a couple key points that highlight like where you've grown where your key experience has been and then like what you're looking for and I think that usually gives enough of a open where the person can follow up on any of that if they want to or they can just be like great and then like move on to the next thing if they want but they at least have a little bit of context about you in case because Reddit is also like it's amazing how many people sometimes don't read resumes so I do think it's a nice chance to just highlight a couple things from your resume in case they didn't read it, because at least like you're calling that out, because otherwise it actually may not come up in your interview at all. The thing I'm, I'm thinking through is, it, you know how you can you can watch like a preview for a movie, right? Like that's kind of how I think about that question. If you do get asked it is what are the highlights, right? Like what would you say about yourself that either is on your resume and you just want to bold and underline and say, hey, this is really great. And this speaks to who I am and my type of character and how I approach, you know, leadership or mentorship or, you know, great things that I've done as a software engineer. And then allowing space and room for the interviewers to kind of either probe further. But at the end of the day, there's there's a list of questions that they're trying to get through. Tell me about yourself is not is not the <laughs> main the main one. So yeah, I would just leave that open for the interviewers. Okay, and then the other side kind of of this question, as an interviewer this time, what are some things that you're looking for in a candidate and you kind of want to make sure that they happened in the interview? For something like the technical side, like the coding challenges or system design, I mean, some things I'm looking for is, one, just like, are they able to kind of dig in and ask more questions and get more clarification and like try to really understand the problem? That doesn't always happen. Sometimes people just kind of jump in and they end up missing like big things because they don't take the time to kind of do that understanding. So that's usually really important to me because, again, like I don't expect you to know everything. Right. But I do want to I want to see how you try to understand the problem. So I'm usually looking for that. And then, yeah, that ability to really speak to like why they're doing certain things, because that's the biggest, like, I think in a technical thing is you're trying to understand you want to make sure they kind of understand the trade offs of different algorithms they use or different libraries or approaches. And like, not just that, like, they kind of have always done it one way and memorized that one way to do it, you know, like, which happens, right? Like, sometimes we fall into that. It's like, I don't know, that's just the way I've always done it. But so like, ideally, it's someone that has a bit of experience that can speak to like, trade-offs, why they would do this, uh, why not, or where the limitations might be. 
But again, and I also think, though, like being OK to admit where, oh, but this I'm not 100 percent sure. And so I would do this to like understand it further. Like that's OK, too. Like, again, because I don't expect you to know everything. So it's OK. Like you don't need to pretend or like try, you know, <laughs> like it's also OK at certain points to like be like in this piece, I don't know very well. So I would look into it or something. And then I think just more on the kind of team and communication, it's really all about just like, will you be a good teammate, right? Like, are you going to work effectively in this team? Are you going to be a good mentor or partner, you know, depending on that maturity, you know, will you be able to learn? Will you be able to like add to this culture in some way, right? Or extend or bring us something. And will you work well with different partners or peers, depending on the role, right? Depending on that need. Yeah, what else? What am I missing, Emma? I feel like I'm kind of <laughs> I'm jumping around on the interviews. What else? <laughs> no, I, I, I think you definitely touched on the things that I feel are most important. I think it's a red flag if a candidate should likely have said, I'm not sure, but I would be happy finding out. And this is what my process for further exploring the solution would look like. I think interviewers can definitely tell when when you're not being genuine, right? And I think it's crucial for a candidate to be honest and humble. I think it's crucial that they ask clarifying questions before beginning to explain how they're going to solution the problem. I think that that's, you know, as engineers, we love to build things, but you don't want to jump in and start solutioning prior to really understanding what problems you're solving for. And I think that goes across the board. So yeah, I'd caution that candidates should start with explaining the logic behind the solution that they're thinking through. And then allow the the team the opportunity to collaborate and say, can I validate my working assumptions with you? And I would also say refreshing yourself on what you have on your resume and not exaggerating the scope of your role. Because I think that that's, yeah, it's just an easy red flag for me. If, if I see someone doesn't actually have the experience that they're speaking to, it, it's obvious. This episode is brought to you by Chronosphere. Scaling Cloud Native is complicated, and Chronosphere helps teams take control of observability, tame rampant data growth, reduce cloud native complexity, and increase the confidence of the business. And I'm here with Martin Mao, co-founder and CEO of Chronosphere. Martin, if teams are bringing in more data, how do you help discern between signal and noise? The two ways to look at solving those problems, one of which is we give tooling, but the higher level thought here is that for every piece of data that you're emitting, what is the value of that data? Do you treat every piece of data equally? You know, you can imagine your development environment and your production environment, you know, the data being produced out of the two of those, maybe one is a lot more valuable. So the high level concept, and again, we give you tooling for it, but the high level concept is that, you know, you should be able to value the data at different rates uh, and sort of attribute resources and costs to them in different ways as well. That's probably a way to solve the cost efficiency problem a lot more than just asking for a discount from a vendor. And then on the second one, it's more the industry is pushing you to produce more data because that's how they make more money, essentially. And we've lost sight of like, well, what are we really using these systems for? Nobody talks about how effective these systems are anymore. Everybody only talks about what data types are you producing? Can your product handle logs, metrics and traces? And the focus is almost on the wrong area of it. All right. The next step is to head to chronosphere.io to explore the platform and get a demo again. Chronosphere.io. being clear and concise which is very important in an interview i would love to hear your three green flags and your three red flags jonas sorry just to confirm i would like to validate <laughs> oh yeah as emma said so red flag is obviously like a deal breaker a green flag is it like immediate throw at them a job offer or it's like a checklist that if this definitely has to happen what do you mean with the green flag like something that is an indication that this could be the right person for the job. So it's something that if they say something, if they demonstrate a certain skill, it might even be like they have a friendly, personable demeanor in the interview. That could be a green flag, which just it makes you as an interviewer more likely to give them a yes. Well, 
I'll just repeat myself of that, like asking clarifying questions, digging in, showing that effort to want to understand really well. I think candidates that seem to really almost be like a step ahead. So like they're thinking a little future thinking with each of their solutions to where it's like, I almost don't even have to ask the question of like, oh, but what would happen in this air scenario? Because they're already starting to think, you know, it's like they're kind of like, all right, so this is how I do this. But then in this, you know, like they can almost kind of take you through because they're thinking through in very clear steps of how the scope or complexity would expand. I think that that kind of logical ability to think really clearly and express it is great. Like when I see cans do that well, yeah, I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, I think just generally anyone that shows just a really strong empathy for others and like someone that just wants to be part of a good team and like is okay learning from failure and, uh, you know, like low ego, just generally like wants to be a strong teammate is really, really important. Like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, like, because that's the thing, we can always learn a lot of stuff. Like you can teach someone go but can you teach them how to be like a good collaborator yeah but that's harder I think I don't know there's less like textbooks out there (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do your red flags or you want me to go on green green lights give you a pause (laughs) yeah yeah do your green and then let me think of my red and then yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so I think being able to pull from being concise, but being able to grab the interview's attention with the examples that you're giving. I really appreciate it when candidates pause before answering. It shows a thoughtfulness to understanding the question before, again, it's that like kind of jump to solution before you really understand. I think that it's totally appropriate and okay and kind of preferred if you say, you know, I'm going to take a minute to make sure just to answer your question thoughtfully think that that's great. I really appreciate it and love when a candidate comes into the interview and has researched anything they can about the company, about the mission, about what language has probed for the recruiter to say, what languages does this team program in? What kind of problems are they solving for? Like you can ask, I think it speaks volumes when a candidate has done that, that initial research and legwork to just show interest and and initiative when taking the interview. Right. And then The last one I would say is perhaps a little bit antiquated, but I I really love it when there's like a a thank you. And that could be in any, in any way, but if I get an email from a candidate that says thank you, or I get, you know, a LinkedIn message and I've done this myself after all interviews, I just think recognizing that people have taken time to jump on a call with you and it just shows that connection, right? Like, Hey, I, I really enjoyed and what you perhaps enjoyed from the interview, what you took away. I think that that is not done enough. And I, I really, it's like a green light. (laughs) All right, red flags. (laughs) Back over to you. Yeah. What should you just not do? Yeah, red flags. I mean, I feel like, hopefully I don't have this, but obviously any sign of like sexism, racism, ableism, ageism, like any of that, like just immediately no. So just, I'll make sure I say that. Because sadly, (laughs) I've encountered it interviewing. I think like opposite of a green flag a bit, just really not asking questions or communicating, particularly in technical, like it's hard for me to even kind of understand what's happening if I don't get anything. And even if it is, cause I do this a bit, what I've had to do more like, you know, the white body ones, I'll say like, Hey, I'm going to work through this a bit silently so I can think, cause that's how I think. And then I'm going to give you a summary afterward. Like even letting someone know up front, if that, if you have a different style, right. Cause I do understand that like people have different styles of learning and communicating, but saying that up front can save you time and like make the interview better. So not doing that. And then I think the other one I kind of, that I've seen sometimes is I think an attitude that sort of implies like the user or the customer is dumb, right? Like there's kind of a lack of empathy there, I think, or a lack of creativity in terms of like as engineers, how we can make our things actually better and easier to use. That's something I've just seen sometimes. Sometimes like, Oh, like, you know, those users, uh, <laughs> like, and like, I get it. Like, you know, I, I definitely can understand, but I think especially in an interview setting, like try to really show empathy for users and like trying to make the best product you can for them. What do they not do? I think I'm a- to Jonas's point, I, I mean, first I'll bold and underline, right? Like don't come into an, in- just please don't be racist or sexist or agent. Like that's just, or ask the interviewer how old they I are. I don't speak to you. And it's just really, <laughs> I just, I, I I don't want to speak to you. Sorry, but there's no room for that. I think it's a red flag to me if when pulling from your answer bank, a candidate showcases the quality of needing to be right 
versus needing to be understood. I think that that speaks, it speaks to their character of how do they show up and up-level their team. I think if you are always needing to be right and you are, there's subtleties of your answer that say, I enter into a room and my way is the, is the right way and that is the end of it. Those candidates, I just won't pass forward. And I'm trying to think through what else. I think not being able to bring strong examples to the table of how you have dealt with moments in your career where you disagree either with leadership or with your boss or how you challenge biases in the workplace. I think candidates need to be able to, to show how they, how they do that and how they provide actionable and valuable feedback because I think that it, it comes back to I, as a manager, won't do everything right. And so I, I definitely am looking for members of my team that hold me accountable, but that also do, that, do so in a way that's you know, compassionate, like Jonah said. So. I think it's a red flag if, again, somebody is not able to demonstrate those qualities. So as is the case with, it seems, every Go Time episode, me and Natalie do, we're going to have to have a follow-up because we're coming to the end of our time. <laughs> but not before we do Unpopular Opinion. Unpopular Opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. So, Emma, what is your unpopular opinion? Do we just give one? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> First time on Go Time. So, unpopular opinion. We're going to ask you for an opinion that you believe may or may not be unpopular. We're then going to tweet about it, and we're going to have a Twitter poll where people will vote on whether they agree or disagree with your opinion. If your opinion is too popular, you're going to have to come back on Go Time and give a better <laughs> unpopular opinion. Okay, I'm gonna hope that this doesn't like go viral or whatever. <laughs> um, I think that mustard is better than ketchup. Okay. Do I need to? <laughs> is there data to support that claim? Emma's right. I thought it was an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Universally, okay. like with any food. Yep. Like you rather put your pretzel in ketchup? Yep. Or mustard than ketchup? Okay, mustard. No, pretzel makes sense. But hot dogs. So hot dogs. Yep. Burgers. Okay. Burgers. Yep. Teeny tiny little like pigs in a blanket. 100% all the time and mustard. Do we have a preference? Is it Dijon? Like, you know, I'm not going to be mustard. particular. Yeah. I just like mustard better. Solid. Okay. We will see. You wouldn't ask me what kind of ketchup I, I prefer. Like it's just ketchup. <laughs> I wouldn't. I would ask how, uh, what kind of ketchup. The red one. <laughs> the red one. <laughs> I didn't know the other kind. I was say clearly you don't like ketchup because this can get contentious on whether you're like a Heinz person or not. You know, yeah. there is a <laughs> inside the ketchup battle. <laughs> you know, in some countries, Heinz is not a ketchup because like percents of tomatoes. You know, same as Pringles. Yeah, not exactly. Chips and those. True. Oh gosh, we've unlocked Pandora's box of condiments. Somebody didn't read the door. <laughs> <laughs> Jonas, unpopular opinion. Yeah, so I think I want to do a bit of a tech one because this came up recently as I was redoing my setup. But I think you don't really need dual monitors. I think one good monitor is all you need. And I don't know, I feel like people get really into dual monitors, but I just think ultimately it creates too much distraction. Humans are actually not good at multitasking. So like one monitor... A good size, like I get like tiny little laptop is too much, like, but get a good one monitor and you'll be able to do everything you need. That's probably my unpopular opinion. We'll see. <laughs> I think that might be popular. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like people get so into like you see, you know, people's like work from home displays and they got like the suit. Well, super wide screen, I guess, is technically one, but I might count that as two. Um, <laughs> or like everyone's got dual or like the vertical and the horizontal and like. I just think, you know, you don't need it. You only need one. I feel like that's a like the hacker movies have done us a disservice. Yeah. We're like, everybody's <laughs> like this. Like, it's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> just need one screen. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see if everyone agrees with you. And on that, uh, on that unpopular, possibly popular opinion note, it's been a pleasure talking to you all today. We'll have to get you back on very, very soon. Side note being, I'm loving looking at these lovely four ladies' faces on go time. Side note, couldn't stop the episode without saying that. But 
let's say goodbye to our lovely listeners. That is go time for this week. Thanks for listening. If you want more like this, we had an awesome JS Party episode in a similar vein. It's called Tech Job Interview Support Group, and it's filled with good ideas, epic rants about the state of things, and a few horror stories as well. Here's Nick on that episode. They asked me a couple of questions over the phone to like pass some baseline, and then I did an interview online like with someone watching me and ask, asking me questions, and I typed into like a shared notepad thing. Passed that, went to their headquarters, and did a series of interviews all in one day, and I think that I kind of just ruined myself in the very first one where they were asking me kind of like what Amelia was saying, like some very specific CSS questions that are not really like what I need to know to write CSS. They're like this. And I was like, well, I'd probably just Google, (laughs) Google, uh, can I use and see, you know, things like that. And then they were like, how would you make all of these divs the same height across everything? And I'm like, I know it would be Flexbox, but I would need to pull up the CSS tricks Flexbox guide to tell you exactly which one, because why would I need to memorize that? And uh, I don't have that when I'm at a whiteboard. So that was not fun. Mm Continue listening at jsparty.fm slash 239. Or if you're subscribed to our master feed, just search for tech job or support group and it'll pop right up. Thanks once again to Fastly and Fly for partnering with us. Please check out what they're up to. They support everything we do. And of course, thank you to our beat freak in residence, Breakmaster Cylinder. Next time on GoTime, Johnny sits down with Aaron Schlesinger, who was on the show talking about functional programming in Go way back in the before times. No, not the times before COVID. I'm talking about the times before generics. Johnny and Aaron revisit the topic now that generics have been a thing for a while. What's changed when it comes to Go and functional programming? Find out when that episode drops into your podcast feed next week. Mm.